All right. Hey, I'm up here, which is weird, right? Now, usually I'm down there, but I had three strikes against me. The first is you guys all sit on this side. And so when I was here, you guys are craning your necks to see me. I got some feedback about that. The other issue was uh, I had my ACL repaired, so I was sitting down for a couple weeks. And so strike two, uh, sitting over here, and um, some of you guys couldn't see very well. But here's the, the main reason. They're doing a production in here, and so the, the uh, students are in here throughout the course of the week, and they're working on stuff, and they've been re-aiming a lot of different lights. And so we basically got to the point where we realized we can't get any uh, good lighting down there for you guys to be able to see. And so I said, you know what, I'll just march up on stage and see how that works and feels. So we'll do this for a little bit and just uh, see what we think. Well, do me a favor and track down a Bible if you can. And get with me to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. We've got Bibles in baskets uh, down by your feet. And if you were to grab one of those blue Bibles, you'd find Luke chapter 16 on page 849. And we're doing a series right now. It's called Game Changer. We're looking at these different spiritual practices and habits and beliefs that if we will embrace, if we will onboard these things into our lives, we, we recognize that they actually help us become more Christ-like. And uh, people who are doing these different things, believing these different things, engaging in these different activities are actually growing, or, or there's a correlation at least between people who are practicing them and their spiritual maturity. So this morning we're looking at generosity, and we're recognizing that this is such a big and important concept, that when Christians get to the place in their discipleship journey where they realize all that I have is owing to God, and I'm responsible to manage it how, however he would see fit, and we begin to do that with our resources, it really does change things. Um, now, I'm going to be incredibly clear here, this is not a veiled attempt at getting more giving at our site. What's happening here, what I find here in this parable, is, is a lot more than just giving. Um, it's kind of a comprehensive way to think about money and resources, and it's pretty searching. So when Ash and I got married, one of her spiritual gifts is generosity, and so we got into a very healthy habit of giving routinely uh, to local church and to global mission opportunities and compassion ministry stuff. And we've made that a habit, and I don't say that to boast because I'm, I'm basically just putting my heart on the examination table, and here's what I found. Even if you are to do those things, even if you, come, uh, even if you decide, I'm going to make a habit of giving and, and a pattern with, you know, I'm going to give a percentage of my resources to the local church and to missions and to compassion, it is still very possible, and I'm talking about my own heart, it is still very, very possible, friends, to be selfish and stingy. And that's what I'm realizing as the word searches me out and I, I come to the conclusion, I want to grow in this area because this is a part of my discipleship, that Jesus is helping me and he's changing me and he's helping me to grow in my awareness of him so that it even touches down in the area of my resources and how I spend money and how I leverage money and how I use my stuff, hopefully to glorify him. So that's my prayer uh, for my own heart and for yours as well. Let's look at Luke chapter 16. We'll read the, uh, the parable and the teaching following it, and then we'll pray and get to work. So this is Luke 16, starting in verse 1 and going to verse 15. Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be my manager any longer. 
The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master's taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 450. Then he asked the second, how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you've not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we ask right now that you would help us grow in generosity. We ask God that by your spirit, with the word open before us, that you would speak to us and change us. We want to become a community, a people, a church, and individuals who are committed to, to using our resources in a way that's pleasing to you. And so we ask for, for your help. We pray that you would speak to us right now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, let's feel our way through this story and see if we can understand what's going on. And I admit right away that this is a hard one to interpret, but luckily it's not so hard to apply because that becomes very clear. But the interpretation of the events is a little bit tricky. So basically, you've got a money manager. You've got somebody who a master has given him the responsibility of managing all these different accounts. And, and that comes with an authority. He gets to draw up the, the contracts and he gets to collect and make some of these different deals. And, and there's an accusation that's made against him that he has been mismanaging the funds. And so there's an accounting. He calls him in and he says, okay, there's an accusation against you. Give your accounting because you can no longer be my manager. So he's being released of his duties. He's being fired and dismissed. And you, you find him then kind of talking to himself. He doesn't, he doesn't argue back, so there's probably an element of, of guilt there. He just kind of receives it, and then he begins talking to himself. And he says, I don't know what I'm supposed to do now. I've just lost my job. I've lost my source of income. And so he begins to think through this, and he says, yeah, I, I'm not strong enough to dig. I can't really just go out and do physical labor, and I'm too ashamed to become a beggar. I don't know if I could bring myself to do that, to be asking people for money. And then he has this aha moment where he says, oh, I know what I'll do. And, and he says, I know what I'll do so that when I lose this job, people will receive me gladly. I know exactly what I'll do. So he begins to call in all of the debtors. And he says, hey, what's your, your current contract? 
And they'll say, okay, it looks like this right now. He says, okay, well, sit down, and we're going to rewrite this contract. And you notice the terms. They are way more agreeable after the fact. He says, okay, so you owe, you owe 900 Well, cut that in half. Oh, you, you owe this? Well, take 25% off of it. And he has them quickly draw up these new agreements. And, and um, he's, what he's doing is he's leveraging his position before he you know, hands over the books. He's leveraging his, his position in order that after he loses his employment, he, he doesn't have another means of, of, of income set up, but he now has a bunch of friends. He has a bunch of people who are so happy with how he has done this final little thing that they're going to gladly receive him into their homes. And then the master commends him. Now, okay, I've told you that this is a tricky one to interpret, and the commentators really can't settle on what they think is going on. And I couldn't either this week, so I'm just going to give you one of the things that I think was probably the most persuasive in my mind. So back then, they would do this. Uh, they would have managers. They would, they would engage in this kind of uh, arrangement. But the Israelite law was such that they weren't supposed to charge interest, and especially on those who were in a position of need. And, and so what I think was happening is when people want to get rich, they find a way to get rich. And so they couldn't draw it up in the contract with the interest rates kind of published right there, but they surely found a way to build it into the, to the price. And I think what was going on then was that this manager was, um, he realized that he was losing his position, so he went back and he rewrote these contracts in a way that kind of excluded all of that interest. My brother-in-law worked in, in auto financing, so this is, this is why it makes so much sense to me. When, when uh, we were car shopping, he said, look, if you buy a car from a dealership and you want to finance it there, when you get approved to, to borrow, make sure that you see what the lenders actually offer you. Make sure that you see kind of the, the lending sheet before you sign any contracts, because here's what they can do. And you can Google it right now. This is pretty standard practice in the auto industry. If you are financing through a car dealership, if the bank comes back and they run your stuff and they go, you're a trustworthy borrower and we would be willing to lend you this amount of money, let's say 2.9% on this uh, many months of, of payments, uh, if they're willing to do that, the dealership itself can add one to three more percent. So you could get approved for 2.9 and, and the bank would say, we would do this. And then they come out and they go, hey, great news. We ran your report. You, you know, the, the um, lenders are okay with it, but you actually got approved for 5.9%. And you don't even know. That's the selling rate, but you're not even aware that you could have been given a much, much better deal. And I think that what's going on here is you've got, you've got this manager who now is going to all these different people and he's saying, look, let's rewrite your account and let's take off anything that you are being charged for that, that isn't appropriate. And the numbers are crazy, right? 100% interest on the first one, 25% interest. Can you imagine? So, so think with me about this. Some of us have car loans. Some of us have mortgages. What if your lender called you tomorrow morning and they said, hey, great news for you. We need you to come into the office. We're going to rewrite your account. And you go, what, what is this about? And you go in and they say, hey, we are going to save you thousands and thousands of dollars. What would you do if you had your lender call? This will never happen, by the way. But if it did, imagine with me, if it did, they call you up, they bring you in. What would you do? I love you, man. Come over for dinner, right? 
I lo- this is amazing that you're going to save me all this money, and all of a sudden, you, you, you have a gratitude toward them. And so now this individual says, I know what I'll do so that when I lose my employment, people will gladly receive me. Okay, well, let's think through how this applies to us then, and this gets more clear as we look at the clear teaching that Jesus gives to this story. Now, the first thing that we struggle with is in our situation, in, in our modern situation, Western situation, when we hear a story, especially a story in a Bible, we want it to be very clear that they are good guys. And if there's anything that we're supposed to imitate about them, we want to know that they're actually the good guys. The problem with this parable is Jesus doesn't teach it that way. He's using a dishonest manager as an example for how Christians ought to behave. So that's, I think that's one of the hiccups that we have as we work through this story. We, we have a hard time with this idea in verse 8 where it says, the master commended the dishonest manager because he acted shrewdly. And we go, why on earth is he being commended? And then what are we supposed to do about that? But Jesus here, he's not making a moral assessment of the individual's behavior. He's using him as an example for us to learn from. So you've got this dishonest manager, but, but he's being commended because he's acting shrewdly. And this isn't the only place where Jesus will do things like this. In fact, in Mark chapter 10, verse 16, he tells his disciples, be wise as serpents. He's telling them to be wise as serpents. Have you ever read your Bible, though? Serpents are not, uh, they, they don't get a lot of good press in the Bible. The devil is the serpent. And so why is it that he tells his followers, be as wise as serpents? Well, he's trying to explain something here. He's saying there's something about them that Christians can and should emulate, and it's prudence, it's wisdom. There's something about this shrewd manager that Christians can and should embrace. What is it? Wisdom and prudence to act decisively in, in a moment in order to do something that would be good in the long run. And that's what he's telling us to do. He's encouraging us to adopt this way of thinking when it comes to our resources. He's not saying, hey guys, I want you to be really sketchy with your stuff. I want you to be really dishonest, and that would be fine with me. No, he's saying there is this idea of wisdom and prudence that even unbelievers embrace. Shouldn't Christians do a much better job with that? So one commentator puts it like this, what's important is not the conclusion of the manager's story, but Jesus' application of his behavior to issues of discipleship. We're, we, we need to think through not why and how did all of that play out with the, the um, dishonest manager, but we need to begin to think through how does this affect our discipleship? What are the things that Jesus is trying to get us to, to onboard in our lives? And it becomes very clear as he makes the teaching more and more clear. Look at verse 8, halfway through it. This is now, the, the parable has ended. Now Jesus is going to begin to explain what's going on. So whether or not we got the the initial details of the story right, the teaching is very, very clear. Here's what he says, verse 8. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. What is he saying? He's saying that unbelievers, like the guy in the story and the master and all these other people, he's saying unbelievers act more shrewdly then do people of the light. He's making a comparison. 
He's saying that people of this world, unbelievers, manage their money in a way that is wise and prudent for their own purposes, toward their own ends. And he says, they do a better job of that. They're more shrewd than most Christians, than the people of the light are. We, this is unfortunate, but we can be naive when we think about our money. We can actually be dismissive. We don't, we, we don't often think that this is a category that God cares deeply about. We think about other stuff. We think about church attendance and serving and all this different stuff, but God also cares about our resources. And we need to be people who are acting shrewdly with those resources according to the way that God wants us to, to do that. So he's making this comparison between the people of this world and the people of the light, and he's saying they are better at this than we are. Okay, so this is the challenge then. Here's where he challenges us to do it differently. Look at verse 9. I tell you. He's talking to his disciples. He's talking to us. He's leaning forward. If Jesus is about to say, hey, listen up, I'm going to tell you something. This is very important for us. He says, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. He's saying, use money in a certain way. Here's how you should use it. Use your worldly resources to gain friendships so that when those resources are gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Now, I struggled with this this week because I was wondering, what does that really mean? What does it mean? Does he really want us to use our money to build relationships? And I tried to think through it and try to explain it and and I finally got to the point where I was like, this is very clear. That's exactly what he's saying. If we're going to be Christians who are prudent, who are wise, who are shrewd, then the resources that we have, we should actually be thinking through how can we use them in such a way that the relationships that we have are improved. Isn't that what he's saying? Use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves. Use your money in such a way that other people around you will be blessed by your resources. Now, that's kind of crazy to think through, and, and I just felt this week that I'm so far behind in this area of discipleship that I had a hard time even thinking through what does that look like in real time. But, but, but help me with this. Help me think through if you were to use your resources in a way that would build friendships, what would that look like? I think it would look like we start, whenever we're making purchases, we don't just think about us. And we don't just think about the immediate family members who may use this thing as well. We start thinking about others. How can people from the church use this? How, how would this bless other people? How could my neighbors benefit from this purchase? How can the people in this community, in the, in the local area, how could they benefit from me using my money in this way? It's telling us to use our resources to build friendships. And, and, and it's telling us that that's an important feature of our discipleship so that we're not relying on, uh, on our savings accounts or our retirement accounts, but we're actually able then to rely on people. Now, this is starting to come true in my life. It's kind of been a part of my desire for a long, long time, but we're building friendships with the immediate people around us uh, in our neighborhood. And we're getting to the point where I really do think if anything were to happen, they would help. And, and there have been moments where that's come true already. You know, I tore my ACL and my next door neighbor, Ryan, he says, I'm just going to mow your yard for the rest of the year. And he just does that. And it's just an example of, you, you, you know, you're building these, you're using your resources to try to build friendships so that you would have this, this network of people who really do care for you. 
And again, this is such a contrary idea. It is such a countercultural idea because most of us are only ever really thinking about us. And we need to begin to recognize God has given us resources that we can manage to build relationships, that we can manage to build relationships. So one of the things we learn then is the priority of friendships. How can you use your money to build out these friendships? Another thing that we learn in this, in this little text here is that money is fleeting. It's saying use your money to do that because it's going to be gone someday. Use your money to do that because there's a day coming where, as other translations say, where it will fail you. That, that you can have all kinds of stuff, but the Bible tells us that there's a day coming where you're not going to have any spending power in the age to come with the resources that you've stacked up for yourself. So when that day comes, you should have something more, endura- more durable than that. So, you, so, so there's a reality here that money is fleeting, that it will fail you, that it can't be the ultimate thing that you rest your security and your heart upon. Another thing that we learn here is the importance of an eternal perspective, that the way, that we, that the way we use our money should actually remind us that there is an age to come that will last for all of eternity, that we spend our money in a way that helps us to recognize these eternal dwellings and the hope that we have of that. So, I know it's not a category we often use when you're cruising through Starbucks and you're looking at the costume and it's 50% off and you're like, I have to have this. You know, it's a onesie or whatever. Um, you're like, you're not thinking about how does this, how, how does this affect all of eternity? How does, this, the, how does this affect all of eternity? How can I use my money in a way that's actually going to be a benefit for all of eternity? Again, it's not, it's not a popular concept, but that's what Jesus is teaching here. As you kind of zoom out, you're, you should notice that the theme running throughout the, these stories is the connectedness between financial wealth and the age to come. In, in the next parable that comes in this same chapter, what happens? You've got a rich man and a beggar. And the rich man has all kinds of resources, but he's using them selfishly, but they both die and the beggar is a believer and goes to Abraham's bosom, and, and the other guy is sent to Hades. And so you have this theme of how you currently use your money does have a, an effect on eternity. And that's what Jesus is teaching throughout these multiple parables and, and instructions here. He's telling us we need an eternal perspective on how we handle our stuff because it really, really does matter. All right, now how we handle our money needs to be along these lines, but it also has the ability to reveal matters of the heart, issues of the heart. So you know in another place, Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And Jesus is helping us here in this story to recognize how you spend your money really reveals whether or not you are living by faith in God and whether or not then you would be trustworthy to receive more and more. Look with me at verses 10 and following. It says, Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. He's saying there's, there's this reality that God is looking at how you handle what he's given you. And if you are mishandling what you presently have, don't expect that he's just going to keep showering you with more. But if you learn how to leverage the resources you do have currently in a way that's pleasing to him, in a trustworthy way, then he will give you more. Look at verse 11. So if you've not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And this is helping us to realize how we use our money has a spiritual connectedness. 
And that's a very important point. If you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you the property of your own? He's just saying, look, money has a way of revealing your heart. God is the one who is evaluating how you are managing this stuff. And if you can't handle what you presently have, then how, how can you expect that he's going to give you true riches and true property? Now, there's a warning here as well. In verse 13, he says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. That's an important word for us because I think a lot of Christians think, I can follow God, but I don't really need to consider my resources as a part of that following. And here he is saying, there is a distinction. You cannot serve both God and money. How you spend reveals where your true priorities lie. How you spend reveals whether or not you are following Christ and submitted to him and his ways, or whether or not that's just a veneer for the things that really do matter to you. But you can't serve both God and money. Now, I know that this is a hard teaching, which is why I'm very excited that at the very end, there's a negative response to it. Because I think a lot of us do this. We hear Jesus talk about our money, or we hear, you know, okay, Cora, I hear what you're saying. That sounds all, you know, that sounds great. But I think you're being a little bit overly dramatic. I think you're going a little too far with this. I don't think God really wants the entirety of the way that I use my resources to reflect him. And so look at what happens to this group of people in verses 14 and 15. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. I think a lot of us hear about the claims that discipleship makes on our resources and we kind of scoff at it. And we go, are you kidding me? Like that just seems like a bit much, that God cares about how I spend my money. And the Pharisees who loved money heard this teaching and they sneered at him. And Jesus gave them a sharp word in verse 15. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others. But God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. And we need that. We need to be reminded that we can try to justify ourselves, that we can try to look at how we do our money and go, yeah, but there are plenty of other Christians who just, well, they don't do that either. So, I mean, this just seems absurd that we would, you know, everything, every purchase that I make ought to glorify God. That just kind of seems a little bit excessive. And we can sneer at it, but Jesus is saying, we might try to justify ourselves here, but God sees our hearts. And he's revealing then, in a moment like this, he's revealing this area of discipleship that we need to address that he wants all of us. He doesn't just want our Sunday mornings. He doesn't just want our volunteerism. He, he wants all of us and everything about us to reflect him and his glory. We need to be people who surrender to him in every way. So let's look now at some lessons that we can learn from this parable and its teaching. So let's zoom back and let's just, I'll do three lessons. We'll wrap up and, and we'll pray. Here's the first thing that we need to understand as we look at this parable and his teaching. We, like the manager, have been entrusted with much, and we will have to give an account. One of the things that we should be aware of is that one day we're going to stand before God and we're going to give an account for our lives, but also for how we, how, how we manage what he has given to us. Everything that we have is owing to him and his goodness. God has entrusted us 
with the position that we have in life and the resources that we have, and according to Deuteronomy, the ability to produce, the ability to work. So everything that we have is actually his, and we're supposed to manage it. And there's a day coming where he's going to say, give an account. Give an account for how you manage the resources that I've given to you. So we need to be aware of that and ready for that. And, and hopefully we would be able to say, what you have entrusted to me, I may not have done it perfectly, but I sought to display your glory in every way that I could. I tried to use your resources in a way that would be pleasing to you. I gave in these different directions to these different ministries, and I, I leveraged the, my purchasing in a way that I thought would benefit other people, and I've tried to manage my money in a way that's pleasing to him. We're going to give an account. I hope that we will be ready for it. Here's the second lesson. We should be very intentional with our money. We should use our money in a way that's very purposeful. And we're told here in the story what, what that should look like. We should use money to gain relationships. The priority here is that we would be building out relationships on which we can rely upon. We should use money to build friends, to, to not just privatize our lives even more, but to actually bless other people who are around us. We should use our money with that sort of deliberateness. We should try to grow the relationships that we have by using our money for those purposes. There's a gospel element to that as well. That's exactly what God did for us. Um, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, we see this picture of the very best example of somebody using their resources to try to bless other people. And it's the example of Jesus Christ himself. And you think with me about this. He was the richest person ever. Son of God, all the glory, everything's his, it's all his. And what does he do? He divests himself of his wealth. He becomes a humble servant. He works a you know, blue-collar job. Um, then he spends a season doing full-time ministry, and he's homeless, and he's wandering around, and he's, you know, he's poor, and he's, in, in a sense, he's kind of destitute, and he's you know, living off of other people. And yet, by doing that, there was something profound that was happening. He was loving people, and he was using his resources to try to win them to himself and to ultimately to salvation. So this is 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. It says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Here's what Jesus did for us. He became the, this humble servant who died on a cross, though he was the richest man ever. He divested himself of what he had, and he did that very purposefully, and, and he did that in order that he could win enemies, so that he could die for them, and they could trust in him, and they could become friends, and even more than that, they could become family. Jesus is the one who leveraged what he did have for the sake of other people in a profound way. That's what we're being called to imitate. We're, we're being called to use our resources in a way that blesses other people so that they might come to saving faith in our Lord and Savior. So we should use our money very intentionally. The third lesson that we see here, and this is the final one that we'll touch on, money is both powerful and dangerous. It's powerful in the sense that we can use it as an instrument to advance God's kingdom, that we can use it in such a purposeful way that relationships will be built. But it's also very dangerous 
It has this, this tendency to draw us toward it and to, to make us feel like it is the most important thing. And if we could have more of it, we'd have more security and more happiness and, and more and more and more. And it's a very dangerous reality. David Garland puts it like this, the danger of mammon is that it creates a love. The danger of money is that it creates a love of acquisition and an appetite for self-gratification while deadening the instinct for self-sacrifice. When we make it all about us, when we spend our money with only us in mind, it deadens us to the things of God. It hardens us to the realities of what it would look like if we could sacrifice for the good of other people. So money is powerful. We can use it for good, but it's also dangerous. God has given us what we do have, and we live very, very privileged lives. As the majority of the world lives on less than $2 a day, and most of us would kind of scoff at that idea, but God has given us a tremendous amount of wealth and resources. So let's be the kind of people and the kind of church that uses it in a generous, self-sacrificial way to bless other people. Let me pray, and we will wrap up for the morning. God, we need your help. Um, we ask God that in a moment like this, that you would change our hearts, that you would, we believe you can, that you, by your spirit, through your word, can change us on the spot. We know that growth often happens incrementally, that it's slow and it's arduous and it's hard and, and, you know, we just kind of make these small steps, but we're asking this morning, God, that you would do a profound work in our hearts that would leave a, a, a tremendous mark on us that we would be able to go out of here and have very significant conversations with our loved ones and say, how could we do this different? How can we use our money in a way that aligns with the agenda of Jesus Christ? How can we bless other people with what we have for God's glory and the good of others? God, we want to be changed people. We want to be generous. So help us to look to our generous Lord and Savior who laid down his life for us and make us more like him, please, in Jesus' name. Amen.